ship, a guided cruise through the dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me today is New York City's most notable Bertie Wooster cosplay enthusiast, Ellie Jacobs. Good morning, Ellie. Good morning, Frank. Uh, it's good to be back with you, even if we are one crew member short. Short as Maggie Moore has decided to take the week off, and we encourage everybody to take more time off. I'm starting to think that maybe we should like redesign work as three weeks on, one week off. That sounds reasonable. I'm yeah. also a big fan. Before we get it, I'm also a big fan of the four-day work week that is becoming increasingly part of the platform and the government of European Social Democratic parties. And I'm not joking. I actually do think that makes a shitload of sense. Yeah, it does. Nobody does any work on Fridays anyway. Exactly. What are we all pretending? Why must we go through this elaborate pretense of work at the end of the week? Yeah. And if we don't have work on Saturdays because it's the Jewish Sabbath, don't have work on Sundays because it's the Christian Sabbath, why shouldn't we be off for Fridays? What do we got against Muslims? That's a really strong point. That's what I'm saying. That's in, that's in, that's in, that's extremely persuasive. We <laughs> need to get on our Democratic Party primary candidates immediately to add this as a plank to their platforms. Yeah. No uh, more Friday. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does. Our our approach to work also. We we want to thank our audience for their patience over the summer as we uh, experimented with different work life balance experiments. Kind of went with the Dutch approach of never really working. So. We thank you for your patience with that. Please do be sure to subscribe and rate us on whatever platform you listen to us on and do follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in prorogation. Uh, speaking of Frank, speak to me of the calamity of British politic. Oh goodness me. Uh, so much fun in, in, in British politics these days. Um, so I, I'm not going to go over what has already happened. I hope, I'm, first of all, I'm sure that our listeners have been following it closely and understood it thoroughly. Uh, as, and if any of you have, please get in touch because I have no idea what the hell has happened. Okay, the, the, where, where, do, where do we stand now? Parliament is back in session after, uh, after Boris Johnson's attempt to suspend it was overturned by the Supreme Court. Unanimously, which basically, uh, without saying so, accused him of lying to the Queen, which... Correct. That yeah. should come with some kind of punishment. It's a it's it it is it's a bad it, it's a bad scene. It's worth just all right. Well, I promised I wouldn't talk about what has happened. It is worth talking about why that's a big deal. What prorogation the suspension of Parliament, uh, which is which a part a Prime Minister suggests and the Queen has to grant, is essentially because Parliaments don't have fixed terms. It's the distinction between one parliamentary term and another. So a parliamentary term can last for years. And it's the same legislative agenda and everyone gets tired. You have to have a break. You have to be able to conjure up a new legislative agenda and come back and say, okay, a new term of parliament has started and this is the new agenda. The gap between the old one and the new one is called prorogation. It is perfectly fine to suspend parliament for that period. The problem, what is not perfectly, and it's perfectly fine to ask the monarch to grant prorogation and the monarch always grants it. What is not perfectly fine is to do it for cynical political reasons when the business of the previous parliament is not remotely done. Uh, and that's that's what Johnson did. It is possible that the Queen, and the, part of the, the great insult here is that, well, it is possible that the Queen could have said, this is a cynical political move and I'm not going to grant it. In point of fact, monarchs are deeply, deeply reluctant uh, and, and raised almost from birth to be reluctant um, to exercise any kind of political judgment one way or the other, because partly because it's seen as an overreach by the monarchy, the, you know, the parliament is sovereign and so forth. Parliament's the power of the land, the monarch can't mess with politics in that way. And partly, I suspect, also to protect the monarchy itself, because what you end up with is a situation in which it becomes clear how little power the monarch actually has over British politics. And there's always this kind of like, you can't, we can't be seen to be putting the queen in a position or the king uh, when that day comes 
um, to be putting the monarch in a position where they actually don't have an, where they don't have any authority whatsoever. It's just not done. We have to go on with this elaborate charade, and if we don't, the how the whole house of cards will come crashing down. So that's kind of that. That's part of part of what Johnson is in trouble for is the cynicism of it, and part of it is like he re, you know he revealed the queen to essentially be in with respect to parliamentary affairs the rubber stamp that monarchs have been for for generations. So where are we now? We are back in session. Yay. Johnson, yeah, yeah, we're back in session. Hurrah, more British Parliament. Uh, Johnson is required in theory by law. Uh, Parliament seized control of the agenda, took it back from him several weeks ago, and passed the Ben Act, which requires that Johnson ask the EU for an extension to Brexit. Right now, Britain is scheduled to crash out of the European Union on October 31st. If they do not have a deal with the EU by October 19th, Johnson is required by law to ask for an extension and the law further requires that he accept any counter offer. So he could ask for an extension of three days. If they come back and say, we'll give you six months, the law requires that he accept the six months. Johnson is basically making noises that he's going to ignore that law, um, that he's not going to ask for an extension or that he is going to attempt to sabotage that extension uh, by asking them in in a letter that on, by asking in his letter for uh, for an extension asking for it in terms that are unacceptable or intolerable or essentially being combative and insulting uh, that he's already being extremely difficult with the EU negotiating teams uh, and that's th this I think is part of his plan to his design well we'll get to what Johnson's grand plan is in a second but he is required by law to do this he might not do it anyway I think what he is trying to do here is to is to force an election, right? This has always been his. This has always been his right. game, and we'll talk about why that is in a second. But I think he is making these noises. I'm not going to negotiate with the EU in good faith. I'm not going to ask for an election or for an extension. And if I do ask for an extension, I'm going to ask for it in such an offensive way it's not granted. Uh, I think that that is all of that is in a, is in the hopes of forcing an election. This whole thing has been about forcing an election. Uh, that might we might take the first step toward that next week. There are rumblings from within some of the opposition parties that there is going to be a vote of no confidence in the government uh, this coming week of parliament. So when there's a vote of no confidence, what happens when there's a vote of no confidence? You need a majority of the, of the, of the House of Commons to vote that they do not have con confidence in the government of the day. That majority, I think, is there to be had. Um, the reason it has not happened yet, and Johnson basically dared them to do it before prorogation, before this whole thing, because again, He's trying to force an election. What he wanted to do was to force an election that would occur either before October 31st, so you know, a mid-October election, or that would occur, or where the campaign would be running during Brexit. So the idea was he wanted to force an election either in mid-October or one that would be like in early November, mid-November, and Brexit would just happen while the election was occurring, right? What a mess that would be. And his idea is he can win because he'll run as, this is what the people want, I'm giving them what they want. Everybody that's standing up against me is the deep state assholes, like the other this party, exactly, the rest of the government, exactly. the media, et cetera, et cetera. Precisely. Johnson's, all of this is based on jo Johnson's bet, and he has done some, some of his strategy has gone well, and some of it has gone horrifically wrong. A lot of it has gone worse than I would have thought it was, than I would have thought it would. Um, but Johnson's strategy has always been rooted in one single thing, which is that the leave vote has been stronger and more unified than the remain vote. Right? That's, that has been, and that's been one of the, that's been maybe the unshakable variable of the last two years of British politics. Three years, Jesus, it's been going on that long. 
the last three years of British politics is that leave is a minority, is, I mean, on, on, in, in June of 2016, it was a majority position. It has occasionally in polling been a majority position, but for the most part, it has been a minority position, but the most solid minority position. So you can, if you've got, you know, 40 to between 40 and 50% of people who support leave, um, that's not a that's not a majority, uh, but that is more than any of the other options of do we want another referendum? Do we want to make it? What do we want to deal? Do we want to just obviate the vote in Parliament? Like there's like Remain is a is a very divided force. Leave is a very united one, and Johnson is his entire strategy appears to have been first to cull uh, opponents of Brexit out of the Conservative Party, which very effectively did. Although it turned out there were a lot more of them than he thought. Uh, which is, I think, one of the one of the things that went badly. I don't. He didn't. Amazingly, he didn't have a good read. I think on the number of on the number and the profile of his opponents within his own party. That was just poorly done. Uh, but he's been trying to p- push them out of his party, and and the, and he is going to run Ellie exactly as you just described. We are. I, Boris is for Brexit. Everyone else, and 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 the court ruling works toward that narrative, right? The courts right. are trying to stop me. Jeremy Corbyn is trying to stop me. The media is trying to stop me. The EU is trying to stop me. I am the only person who respects the, who respects the right. way you voted. Right? That's his gamble. If there is a no confidence next week, and I think the numbers are there, it's pretty clear that Boris Johnson wants this election at some point, uh, wants it as quickly as possible. If there's a no confidence vote, and to be cleverly, the opposition parties, to their credit, did not grant him that no confidence vote in that early election several weeks ago. So, no confidence vote next week. If that happened, could happen. It might not. If it does, uh, what happens with a no confidence vote? When there's a no confidence vote, the opposing parties have two weeks to see if they can form a government, right? So you, within parliament, there's no, it doesn't automatically trigger an election. You have two weeks in which the opposition parties roam around seeing if they can form a government for themselves. If there is a government, if a government is formed uh, that government would be for, would be a short government under Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister. And it would be there, I think, to do probably three things. Its purpose would be first to ask for an extent, to formally ask the EU for an extension, to schedule a general election uh, that would occur before that, uh, that, ex- that would occur before that extension, probably in November or December. So you'd be looking for like a three to six month extension on Brexit and a general election before that. And then they would probably also schedule another referendum, a referendum on the deal on the deal itself. Or there would be the idea would be we're going to have a general election. We are going to there's going to be a we're going to have a general election. We're going to have another referendum on Brexit, and then there's going to be a delay. And then there's going to be the actual exit date is going to be down the line. Those would right. be the three things that the Jeremy Corbyn government would do. Then they would immediately stand. The theory is they would immediately stand down, and there would actually be a general election because Corbyn doesn't have enough to form an actual government, like we're going to govern and this, we're going to pass a budget and we're going to govern the United Kingdom. doesn't have anything like the numbers to do that. Right. Um, and he's he batshit insane. But he does have the numbers to pull together. Uh, probably he might have the numbers to pull together the agenda I just described. It is also very possible that he does not, um, that if there's a no confidence vote, he might not have the numbers to form a government. Uh, you know, this again, remain is very divided. The anti-conservative forces are very divided. If he doesn't have the numbers to form a government after two weeks, then the general then a general election is scheduled. If that happened, this is why they're so cautious about taking a no confidence vote. If that happens, the two weeks pass. It's mid October. There's been no election called. Uh, there's been you know, there, there's or excuse 
be it. There's no government formed. There's been an election called that government. That election will occur in mid-November, and which is after the the Brexit exit date. And Boris Johnson might not actually. He might not go to the EU and ask for an extension. So Britain could still crash out during a during in the middle of a campaign. Right. Uh, but one way or the other, what is happening here is the heart of all of this is that Boris Johnson is betting on the unity of the of of the Leave position against the divided nature of Remain. Uh, and and then there'll be a <clears throat> and the idea being that will not only see him through this crisis but really get him into a general election in which his position will prevail over uh, Labour, which is a very uh, and the Lib uh, and the Lib Dems, the Liberal Democratic Party, which is a very strong pro Remain. They are running as the we're going to undo the referendum, uh, but there's also only 18 of them, and you need 325. Little you know, for various reasons, you need less than 325. But in theory, a working would majority of parliament is 326. Uh, so the Lib Dems starting from 18 have a long way to go. So anyway, that's, that, that is where we stand. If there's no confidence vote this week, uh, there two week that, that will then trigger a two week process. And that could result in anything from a six month delay and two more elections to an election very quickly and Brexit by the end of the month. There is everything to play for as one might say. Excellent. Yeah, it's wild. Yes. So there we have it. Uh, our, our cousins, uh, you know, again, it, there is some comfort in the, uh, for Americans during this period that as oddly as our institutions appear to be behaving right now, um, you know, it, it could be worse. At least we don't, at least we're not to be made fun of uh, by our, by our cousins in the special relationship. Speaking of people, whose uh, legislative and electoral processes are maybe not entirely working the way they were designed to. Uh, how fares Israel these days, Ellie? Actually, let me ask you a more specific question. How did, uh, how did Netanyahu contrive to lose an election and then get the chance to form a government? Yeah, so Israel works like as a parliament also. And the way I've been explaining this since the, before the votes were actually taken is the best way to think about Israeli politics is the old quote from The Wire that one side doesn't win, the other side just loses more slowly. And that's really the way to look at it. So basically, the same way that a, the British parliament, you need X number of people to form a government. In Israeli politics, you need 61 seats in the Knesset um, signed on to your coalition in order to control, control the thing. Uh, there were some 22 parties, I think, that people could vote for. Um, you know. Oh, good. I like to have a nice broad selection. Yeah, you know, 13 or, and then you need to hit a threshold of 3.25% of the total vote. And Israelis come out and vote in, in you know, mass numbers, something like 70% of the population voted. Um, and we ended up with a situation where Gantz's party, Blue and White, had 33 seats. Netanyahu's party had 31 seats, but Netanyahu's block, his right-wing block, has 55 seats altogether. Gantz has 54. So basically what happens after the final tally comes, every head of the party, each party goes in front of the, prime, of the president, President Rivlin, which is mostly a ceremonial post. This is literally like his only job is to designate someone to form a government following an election. He listens to all the different parties and then says, all right, you know what? Sounds like Bibi's got more, more of an opportunity to form one than, than Gantz does. We're gonna, Bibi's going to have the first shot at this. So he's got 28 days to do this. And this is during the Jewish holidays uh, over the next month, which is, you know, makes things a little difficult. There's a lot of betting going. There's a lot of, you know, strategy that 
basically the only thing we know for sure is that Rivlin, there's one thing we can almost bank on is that Rivlin is going to do everything in his power to prevent a third election in 2019. Uh, which would like just be insane that it would happen. But that's the only thing we can know for sure, that he's going to do everything he can in his power to do that. And what's really fascinating about some of these characters is that a lot of them hate each other, but mostly everybody hates BB. So like Rivlin and BB have personal animosity. Um, one of CBS's less popular, but I thought more trenchant comedies. Yeah. <laughs> it was on right after How I Met Your Mother, I believe. That's, ex- that's exactly right. On that, fam- on that famous, uh, you know, must, Tuesday uh, must see and also must desperately avoid Thursday. Yeah. Um, so basically what you end up with is Netanyahu is the first go of it. There's, there's you know, people theorize that Rivlin gave Netanyahu the first go because he's likely to fail, which will put Gantz in a better position to be able to form a unity government. The big trouble is, is to get to that 61 seats, nobody has a clear-cut path to do it, uh, mostly because Yisrael Bentenu, Lieberman's party, which is the reason that we ended up with the second election in the first place, because he, he refused to sit with Netanyahu's government, once again has eight seats and has, has decided to play kingmaker. Again, he and Netanyahu hate each other. Um, what was really inter- what's been really interesting so far is that the joint Arab list, uh, remember the Jewish Arab population is about 20% of the country, um, and over the last three elections or so, they have run a joint list. So there are different parties, but they run together as a block. They have 13 seats in the new Knesset, um, and they have never before uh, recommended someone to the president. Um, they did this time around. Um, they went and uh, with, a very, with a very powerful op-ed in the New York Times, Oda announced that, Oda, the, the head of the party announced that, uh, the head of the list announced that they were going to back Gantz. Um, not because they were going to sit in the government or really want Gantz. They just really don't want Bibi. Um, so after that wow. announcement came out, um, th- um, th- one of the smaller parties in the group that has three seats said, no, nah, no, nah, we don't want anything to do with that. So you only end up with 10 backing for Gantz. That's why he's got you know 54 instead of a little bit more. None of the math works out that anybody gets to 61. What everybody is hoping is that there'll be a unity government, which is basically how Israel ran in the 80s. Um, it was the the premiership would switch off between the two leading parties every two years. Wow. <laughs> Wait. So this was just, this is not something that was called, this is not constitutionally provided for. This was just a, there is no numbers, constitution. There's no, well, this is again, this is also a, a point that should be made about British politics. There's been a lot of discussion about the British, about, about there being a constitutional crisis. There is no written constitution in Britain. Right. Everything is just a matter of like laws and habits. There's, uh, so, basic, but, there's basic law in Israel. I remember, I mean, yeah. the Israeli uh, government is based largely off of the British government. And, and clearly, yeah. I mean, what, what, yeah. because this, I, you know, I've got to tell you, like some of our listeners may, be, may have difficulty tracking the, the various pronouns, the, you know, the characters and so forth. Uh, and and I, I too am having difficulty tracking the actors, yeah. the party names, but this whole, like, we've got a bunch of people who can't, who are fundamentally incapable of agreeing and, and none of it adds up to a majority. This, as someone who at least has been paying reasonable attention to British politics, is extremely my shit. Yeah. Like, this is right where we are. Like, this, it just, it feels familiar, and I got to tell you, it feels right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like that nice, warm, heavy blanket. <laughs> this, is exactly, this is precisely like a, weighted, like a weighted blanket, except it's over your head suffocating you. Yeah. So basically, to sum the whole thing up, the, the, the real X factor in all of this is that Netanyahu faces possible indictment in two weeks. Hell yeah, now we're talking. As pri- more people under indictment, fewer people under everything else. Yeah. As prime minister, he can continue to function uh, as prime minister under indictment until he is convicted of something. That's, again, part of the basic law. 
uh, any other minister, if they're indicted, they have to they have to resign. So Netanyahu is fighting pretty much for his like ability to stay out of jail at this point. To, that's like how desperate he is to form a government because he wants to pass a law that will essentially um, prevent him from being indicted. My first order of business is to, to save my parliament ass. exonerate myself. Yeah, pretty much. Oh man, that's the that's that's that, that's that's above board. It seems legit. I love it. Yeah. So basically, in the unity government, the, the issue becomes is that the ultra orthodox parties um, and blue and white won't sit together. Um, Yisrael Bentenu, the Lieberman's party, won't sit with the ultra orthodox. The Arabs won't sit with anybody, which also becomes really interesting because if they don't, if there is a unity government, they become the lead opposition party and they're granted um, the same, it's basically shadow government. They're given the same access to intelligence and briefings and everything else, which would be, a lot of people are like freaked out about that. Other people think it's really healthy, but that's how it goes. Um, so you basically end up with a situation that the most plausible thing or the thing that should happen in, in if this wasn't dumbest timeline world at this point is Likud would look at Bibi and said, you know what, Benjamin, you've had, you've had a pretty good run. It's time for you to go off to pasture. Um, you're no longer the head of our party. And essentially, two seconds after that, there would be a unity government with Gantz. That's essentially what, if the, that, to my bet is the calculation on Rivlin's part is by letting Bibi go first and failing, it'll give more incentive to the Likud party to say, fuck off. Do they have the stones to do it? That's the big question. Uh, <laughs> that's the big, big question. Bibi has, been, has worked very hard over his career to ensure that there's no natural successor. Mm -hmm. um, so there isn't necessarily one. Um, Yisrael Katz, who's the, now the foreign minister, um, is, might be in the best position. Um, his, but again, you end up with, now you end up with like cross-cultural, cross-border popularity being an issue you know again Netanyahu has a lot of power and because of his perfect English um, there really isn't another politician in Israeli politics right now that has that command of the American electorate or the American or, or English um, mm -hmm. um, near Barkat the former mayor of Jerusalem maybe mm -hmm. um, there's a f there are definitely a few people within Likud who could be seen to be a natural successor it's just a question if any of them are going to get the stones to toss them overboard wow wild it's interesting to me that we have gotten to a spot so you know again in britain we, we went we went over what that was uh, which you know the version which is complete shit, shit. Um, israel a math problem that has no solution and that no one wanted um, and and in america we have an impeachment process uh, that is effectively a formal is it that it that is you know formal and we could argue it's necessity i happen to think the I mean, at this point, it had it had to be done to preserve the very concept of impeachment itself. Yeah, I, I, was, was, going, I, mean, I, I was actually almost going to introduce our not speaking of impeachment by saying it doesn't matter. Sure, I mean, it is, it is a it. it the, we know what the politics of it are, right? Like you've right. got like you, it. You know, you, I mean, you've got the president on the phone saying, "I would like to do some crimes," and in fact, I'm doing a crime now. Right. Uh, and I mean, at that point, if you don't move forward with an investigation, then you've done away with the very idea that impeachment has any relevance ever again unless you have control both chambers. But it's very possible that this won't even come to a trial in the Senate. And, right. and so what we are seeing in all three of the countries that we talk about, you know, Britain, Israel, and America, uh, we see institution, democratic institutions, that it, it's not entirely clear that they work. Um, that they are, and the nice thing about the American one is 
we recreate our, our cycle is fast enough. Um, so my hope would be our cycle is fast enough that even if we don't, even if it doesn't work this time, there is a political consequence for for the impeachment process not working in a year's time. Um, there may be a unity government in Israel. Like if Netanyahu was turfed out and there's a unity government for a period of years, that would suggest that at least the thing is reason is holding together. Um, and there is, I think, a path forward in British politics as well. So my hope is that what we are seeing right now in, in all three countries is effectively the nadir of the functioning of our of our democracy, or at least the institutions that guide them. Either that or everybody should go buy a copy of the Little Red Book. That would be my recommendation in all circumstances anyway. Uh, and it's, it would certainly be the advice of, uh, of Labour's shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, who literally, I, I have to, we have to remind you of one of this, literally pulled one of those things out on the floor of the House of Commons. Good so, God. Yeah. All right. Well, before, before we turn completely to the primaries, let's not skip over impeachment entirely. Let's just okay. remind our listeners that the Constitution created the ability to impeach the president because you didn't want a monarch. And the Constitution says it's high crimes and misdemeanors, and there's no description of what exactly that is, which means that impeachment in any circumstance is always a political decision. And as Gerald Ford told us, high crimes and misdemeanors and impeachable offenses are whatever the fuck the House of Representatives decides it is that day, mm -hmm. essentially. Yes. Um, which is how Bill Clinton trying to cover up an extramarital affair could be impeached. It's how... Richard Nixon essentially just abusing the shit out of the powers of office can be impeached. It's how, you know, and it's how articles of impeachment can get brought up against Barack Obama for wearing a tan, tan suit or George W. Bush for starting a, uh, starting a war under f false pretenses. This is kind of just how America works. I think the, so impeachment at some point, articles of impeachment will be drafted by the Judiciary Committee. They'll be brought to the House floor. It's almost uh, guaranteed that, it'll, that they will be passed on a party line vote. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe a couple Republicans who are retiring will grow, grow a pair and, and do something. Um, you know, uh, what's, uh, Amash has already become an independent, but maybe you could see somebody like Will Hurd or a few other people, you know, right. Stick in their next. It's, it's technically it's possible. possible. Yeah. The Republicans are really going to be pushing, uh, for really going to be pushing unity on this one, because if it clears on a straight party line vote, it helps their narrative that this is a party. This is a party. Right. This is a, a party politics based assassination attempt. Right. And then at that point, uh, they walk across the hall, basically, and say to the Senate, hey, here's articles of impeachment. Start your goddamn trial. The Senate actually has to hold um, they have to hold a vote on whether or not to hold the, the trial to begin with. So to be convicted in the Senate and the way this works is the impeachment is now your indictment. You've been indicted go across the hall to the Senate. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, presides over a trial. The senators are the jury. And they then vote on each article of impeachment, uh, guilty or innocent, essentially. Uh, Bill Clinton was guilty, was uh, um, uh, cleared on all. Richard Nixon didn't even get impeached because he retired. He resigned before he had the opportunity to. Andrew Johnson was uh, was also not, not, convicted, uh, not convicted. So, um, and it only takes one. Uh, one count uh, out of however many that they face. So um, it ha you have to have 67 votes to convict. It has to be two thirds. Uh, you need 60 votes to actually have the trial. So it's possible that they could block even having the trial to begin with. Yeah, it is. And, and I think if I had to bet, I would say that's probably the way it goes. Um, because if I'm, if, because if I were Mitch McConnell, I mean, the thought that doesn't really bear consideration, but right, that just gave me the skeevies. You man. really want, you don't want vulnerable 
uh, Republican senators <clears throat> going on the record on whether after this lengthy process, after the lengthy process of a trial, right, in which all of this stuff is like thrashed out day after day, you don't want them to be put on the record for uh, actually ex exercising a judgment about Donald Trump's apparent guilt or innocence, especially after all of this evidence comes to light. My suspicion is they will try and quash this immediately because if the idea is it does, it's not even worthy of a trial, yeah. uh, that fits the party line narrative. We will, we will see, right? I mean, you know, this, this is, if they do decide to go forward with the trial, I think it will surprise me greatly uh, and, and be a, an, an indication that maybe there is some movement within the Republican Party to sort of see a, a, a future without. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mitt, Mitt but, Romney, Mitt Romney's out there talking, doing his thing and, 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 and um, you know, kind of growing a spine, but not really because he's Mitt Romney. Yeah. Other people, you know, you have to look at the folks who sit on the intelligence committee. Mm -hmm. um, that'll get the Democrats to the 60 votes, essentially. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's, I would recommend everybody go back and read, and we'll post it in the show notes. Um, Lindsey Graham's uh, Lindsey Graham was the lead prosecutor essentially when he was in the House of Representatives during Bill Clinton's impeachment trial. Everybody should go back and read the speech that he gave. And I, I would very much like various members of the House, the Democratic members of the House of Representatives, to just read it on the floor into the record. Yeah, on a daily basis, it should just be read in, into the record on a daily basis. Yeah. Just for posterity. And this really raises a good point. About and, and for reporters to just continually question Lindsey Graham, like quote, quote him verbatim and ask him why his mind is different. Um, and the other, you know, the, the, I would also recommend, I read it over the summer, Tim Alberta's book, um, which name is completely escaping me right now because my brain is mush. Um, American carnage, essentially about like the history of the Republican party over the last dozen years or so. Um, I didn't think it was going to be a must read. I thought it was going to be just filled with like juice, you know, interesting interviews and Paul Ryan, you know, unshackled. Uh, it, it gives you a really good idea of where we're at and why Trump's not really going to go anywhere anytime soon. And also provides a playbook to worry about, you know, extreme flanks on the other side, taking control of the party. It's uh, it's worth reading. It's very long, but it's very well written and very well researched. Okay. All right. A fair recommendation there. Uh, I just have a quick observation I want to make about the primaries, uh, and then and then I, I think I will have said pretty much what I care to say about American politics for today. Um, yeah, considering we weren't going to talk about impeachment. Yeah, yeah, and here, but it was. I mean, it was. It was. You know, I mean, it was worth saying. We couldn't pretend it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, so there have been a couple of presidential campaigns that have put out uh, put out sort of uh, you know alarms over the last couple of days uh, to the effect that they're running out of money, and if they don't get more donors, they're not going to make the next debate state, they won't be able to continue. Those two are, uh, are Castro and Booker. And I also think it is interesting that uh, from, an, from a polling perspective, there's been a, there's been a uh, that Kamala Harris's campaign and is struggling so much that she is, there's been a, a significant swoon, not only in, in uh, Iowa, but across, uh, across national polling, just far from out of the game, but, but she's fallen from the heights that she, uh, she got to after the June primary. And this is not uncommon for big primaries, right? Someone, someone gets popular, they fall off, and the person gets popular, they fall off. Same thing's happened to Pete Buttigieg, uh, although his fundraising numbers continue strong or ha are really strong, but his polling numbers are, have, have also fallen. They were never as high as his fundraising numbers. But I think what, what is of interest to me about the campaigns that are obviously struggling now polling wise that, or are, and, and, or are about to, to drop out, like again, Booker and, and Costra, I think are, are both on their last legs. Um, it, 
those those campaigns and 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 Harris, I think it's fair to say as well, have been speci- appear to have been specifically in reaction to Trump, right? Like Castro has Castro's campaign always struggled to define what it was about, mm-hmm. uh, but he, where he has gotten his legs a little bit recently is in def- is in being speaking directly to and being defiant of Trump. Booker's whole thing is talking about a different politics based on love that is designed entirely to oppose Trump. Yeah, it'd be nice um, if he loved his former city of Newark enough to pay attention to the water crisis that's going on there. But you know that has shit on, I'll shit on Cory Booker another day. That's yeah, yeah. I I know you will, and we look forward to that. And a lot of Harris's appeal has been based on the idea that is a, you know, that is a, it is African American female prosecutors she'll take. Yeah, prosecutor she could yeah she could take him on, and and has and and had some good had some very good moments in hearings with uh, his administration officials and so forth. The candidates who are doing well, Biden is offering us functionally a return to. I mean, it's basically saying this is a return to normalcy, right? We're going to get mm-hmm. past Trump. We're going to go back to the way things were. Uh, Warren and Sanders are offering us not a return to normalcy, but they are saying we're going to get past Trump. We're going to get past Trump and we're going to go to the next thing, the next American economy, the next deal for Americans, right? Like that's, and those two, and those are your sort of three big ones. And Buttigieg is offering a, we're going to get past this generation and we're going to go straight to the next generation. It is interesting to me that the people who are, and, and I think not insignificant, that the candidates who are polling well and are fundraising well are the ones whose entire deal is not a response to Trump, but we are getting past this guy and going to something else. In Biden's case, we're going back. In the case of, of Warren Sanders and Buttigieg, we're going forward uh, to, you know, to something else. They have very different visions of what that next thing is. Uh, but the candidates who are well, appear to be directly a lot in like going to, back, but with a new guy. With a new guy. Yeah, but, he, but, a lot, but beneath, that's true. But beneath all of this is a, is a generational thing, yeah. right? Like, you're, like we're, we're moving on to a new generation in charge. Um, stylistically, it's a lot like the luckily what came before. That is, I think, of interest to me. That uh, and and I think it's. I suspect that that will continue. And it is a cautionary example for anyone thinking of running for anything. Uh, don't run against your opponent. Then this is when we talk about mistakes that candidates make when they're talking about why they're running for office. Uh, saying I can I can take on and beat candidate X is actually not a good rationale. People want to know what your what right. what is your vision for the polity? What's your vision for the tribe? Um, and the candidates who have, and and they have them, I think, especially Castro has that vision. But for whatever reason, they have, Jill Brand was the same way. Whatever re, and she's obviously left the race now. For whatever reason, they struggled to articulate what they wanted to do, except oppose Donald Trump. And there's, it's pretty clear there's not a lot of appetite for that. At least there's appetite point. for opposing Trump, but yeah. for that alone, I think is a, is yeah. too limited I, for the. I, I think you know once it gets more clear of who are, I mean, on this podcast we've been saying for. I mean, since this whole thing even kicked off, that we're going to be looking at four or five people um, come Super Tuesday. Um, and I think we're all in agreement on who those four or five are. Um, it'll, you know, at, at some point, um, I, I, you know, I can kind of understand why Elizabeth Warren hasn't killed Bernie Sanders dead yet um, because it gives her the ability to propose something that is pretty revolutionary, but be able to say that it's more mainstream than that crazy fucking guy from Vermont. Um, but at some point that'll get to be old shtick and she will need to kill him to get ahead and she will do it. But yeah. it's just a question of when. And it appears to be happening. I mean, his, his support yeah. is swimming. I think people are warming up to her. Um, I, w- I, w- I will say this. If he wants to go, if he wants to spend the rest of this campaign before what I suspect is his inevitable departure, um, talking about the various types of crushing debt that, uh, that, should, that, we, that the federal government should relieve from the lives of ordinary Americans, um, he will have used that time extremely well. Um, he's, 
his business of going around and call it, we're calling off student debt and we're call, and we're canceling all medical debt. We're paying off all medical debt is that is legit awesome policy that provides, I think a very real service for the party. Uh, so if he wants to keep doing that for whatever time he has left, he's welcome as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I think, I think the outcome is, is, is exactly as you say this. I think she eventually consult. I think eventually she consolidates the left of the party now, which would make her, them make her the leader amongst those three Sanders right. and Warren have more support than Biden, but it is still a minority within the party itself. Mm-hmm. Does everyone else consolidate around Biden or someone else or, or is that enough to, for her to win? I don't know. Yeah. And there's also the ridiculous possibility that we go into Milwaukee without a candidate and this gets decided on the floor, which is terrifying. Yeah, it's a, there's a non-zero chance of it. I wouldn't bet on it, but it's certainly I wouldn't possible. bet on it, but it's certainly non-zero. All right, we've been yakking for a while. Um, once Maggie is back aboard, we will spend some time uh, digging into the primaries a little bit more, uh, particularly after I think the next debate, which is the end of the month, if memory serves. Yeah. I haven't been paying attention to them anyway, but some Tom Steyer's in it for unbeknownst reasons, and you know all these jackasses are just not going away. For It's, it's difficult to understand it, but... <laughs> Um, we will dig into that um, at, further down the road. Please do um, rate us and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Taking Ship, and that's Ship with a P, as in Parliamentary. Um, and with that, Frank, since we do have you back, let us continue our war with the sea. Where are we taking ship? We are taking ship this week to New Zealand, and I will explain why in a moment. I want to thank everyone who sent us, who sent me, who sent us. Uh, news articles about the walrus that uh, sank a Russian naval vessel. That's not a joke. A Russian naval vessel was sunk by an angry walrus defending her cubs. Uh, it warms the heart when you send me dispatches from the news in the sea, and I have uh, three responses to this, again, real story about a walrus sinking a Russian naval vessel. First, point one, a walrus is nothing more than a saltwater hippo. We all know this, don't at me. Point two, this having a vessel, having a vessel sunk not the worst outcome the Russian Navy has ever experienced on an expedition. And point three, at two walruses. Because I had looked upon the walrus and seen the, and seen the mighty glorious walrus sunning itself upon the terrestrial land like anything else, uh, waddling about, uh, enjoying the sun, its proud belly dragging on the ground, and thought, you know, this, thing, this creature basically has the right idea. I think this thing is okay. I feel like this creature, I feel like this mighty beast is on our side. And I was wrong. I was dead wrong. The walruses have declared their allegiance, and this just absolutely breaks my heart. And so, my friends, we set sail this week for Disappointment Island, which is a real place in New Zealand. We we take ship this week to Disappointment Island, there to reflect on the conduct of walruses. Take care, everybody.